Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tirisia and Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockwell. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. This week, we have a recent panel discussion that was given at the University of Technology, Sydney, titled Embracing the Power of AI in Enterprise, Bridging Academia and Industry for a Transformative Future. The talk features a number of speakers talking about the opportunities and challenges AI will pose industry in the coming years. The discussion was moderated by Michael Blumenstein, Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and IT. Embracing the power of active tomorrow. So I really have the great pleasure as uh, the moderator today. My name is Michael Blumenstein. I'm the Deputy Dean for Research and Innovation in the Faculty of Engineering and IT here at UTS, but not in this building, um, somewhere across the road back there. But this is an amazing venue for us to be talking about this important topic, um, uh, which is basically on the tips of everyone's tongues at the moment, uh, trying to actually make sense of what AI is doing for the benefit of uh, industry and academia, and more importantly, and hopefully we'll tease this out of the panellists today, is uh, what the future holds for AI in industry. So I, without further ado, I'd like to just uh, go around the panel. I'm going to say just a, a couple of words of introduction for each panel member, but then I'll ask them to, um, to give a little bit more information about their backgrounds and their uh, interest in the AI field. So Professor Jia Lu, sitting on my right, who's the Distinguished Professor uh, uh, in the Faculty of Engineering and IT, uh, who's the Director of the Australian Artificial Intelligence Institute at uh, UTS. So please welcome her. Um, I'd like to also um, introduce Libby Roberts, who's from the company Leap Forward. Please join me in welcoming her. And I'm going to introduce, lastly on the panel, but definitely not least, Louise Pizzato from CBA, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Welcome, Louise. So in opening, um, I'd like to get each of the panellists uh, to introduce themselves uh, and just to talk a little bit about how they got involved in their respective areas uh, and in AI particularly and, in the, and, and how... Um, we they they see their role in their organisations. So, I might just um, uh, just also say a few words about my interests. Uh, although I shouldn't be because I'm the moderator, I shouldn't be talking about myself. But um, I just like to say that uh, personally, I'm apart from being the deputy dean, I've actually had about 25 years of experience uh, researching and also applying uh, AI into industrial and government applications. So. I have a real passion for this, but um, but I'm not speaking today. I'm just moderating. So I just wanted to mention that. So I'm going to start from the end. Uh, Louise, would you like to introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about how you got involved in the world of AI? I just, oh, wasn't sure it was on or not. Um, yeah, Michael, you beat me to it. I, I normally say I have more than 20 years experience in AI. I probably don't have 25. I have to calculate. Showing my age, it's okay. <laughs> me too, right? <laughs> Um, I, was, I was actually talking to someone about this today and how did I get involved, why did I do AI? And, and I actually had a course at university on AI and I got really excited about building agents, intelligent agents that would interact, uh, to, it, interact to each other. And it's normally at that time, AI at that time, it's 
for gaming, right? That's why I'm thinking I want to be developing games and then develop intelligent agents. In the end of the day, I end up doing natural language processing. So I, I build systems that um, uh, are pretty much what you see in ChatGPT today, like question answering systems. Um, one paper I, I wrote 20 years ago, now 18 years ago, is literally what Bing is doing, which is actually doing search uh, and then trying to extract the answers on top of that search. Um, so um, just a bit of my history, right, in that, that sense. And then I, I end up working on recommender systems, which are very much on topic. Build the, the first recommender system for online dating. That's a completely different story I can tell about. In um, <clears throat> my role at SCBA, I lead a, a very large number of data scientists uh, across uh, most of the retail banking and technology. Uh, one of the roles I have is uh, very much in collaboration with um, research and the innovation space for CBA. It's actually trying to, to be in the front foot about every change in technology. So things like ChatGPT is something we've been doing uh, for more than two years now. Um, so pretty much leading the bank in that, that kind of space. And, but I'll, I'll talk, I guess I'll talk more about it later in the panel. Thanks, Louise. Libby? Uh, yeah, so I don't come from a science background. I'm a psychologist by training. And I guess my interest in AI came about because I wanted to find a way that we could deliver psychological support to people but in a scalable way. And so I'd started um, reading and came across the work by um, Rosalind Picard at the MIT Media Lab and her work with relational agents and effective computing. And I thought that's probably how we can scale psychological services. So that's where my interest stemmed from. Thanks, Libby. Shia, I think it's on. It's on. Oh, I have been in AI area for more than 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so my current research area is uh, mainly in machine learning, how machines can learn from data and the data in very complex situations, for example, data streams, for example, data with missing data and uncertain data, and how machine learning can support decision-making prediction in dynamic situations. So I'm doing my Australian, um, Australian Laureate Fellow, so that's a big project I'm still working on. That is the main topic of my research. And uh, also, um, you mentioned the recommender systems. That's good. So my particular research areas in transfer learning and uh, this uh, drift, concept drift learning, recommender systems, and the decision support systems. So that's my particular it's a focus areas. I have done some uh, research to develop the advanced machine learning algorithms, models, and also some applications in different industry sectors. Currently, I'm <laughs> mentioned, uh, Michael mentioned, I'm the director of Australia AI Institute at UTS. I should mention that that's the largest ARC hub in, uh, largest AI hub in Australia. We have 220 PhD students. 30 staff members and 10 postdocs. And we have uh, 25 ARC national projects and also 50 industry projects. So anybody, if you want to have any collaboration, just send me an email or look at our 
A A I I live page. Thank you, G. Um, in the spirit of uh, selling, uh, I might uh, also just mention that uh, I, you know, uh, being aware at UTS, I, I wanted to also put some context around um, some of the the uh, work that we do uh, and and what's actually come out in terms of um, you know the quality of work that we do. Um, I could not uh, not mention this because. Uh, you know, I, 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 my, my higher management would, would love me to talk about it, but in this forum, we're ranked in the top 20 in the world and number one in Australia for computer science. And uh, by the US global rankings, we're third in the world in AI and first in Australia. So I had to just put in that plug. Um, just uh, moving on to, uh, you know, the topics, uh, one of the things I would like to get our panellists to talk about a little bit is how they are actually using AI in their businesses. And I think this is a really important thing to, to mention. I might just start with Libby, if you could. Um, in your area, how, how are you using AI to, for the benefit of your business? So we're using AI in a couple of different ways. So uh, Leap Forward is essentially um, a company that designs and delivers programs using the power of AI to support mental health and, and physical wellbeing. And we're using AI to not only um, recommend content to people who are using the app, but we're also using it in the uh, chatbot who is delivering, she's our, our digital coach essentially, our digital therapist. So she's available 24 seven to give users um, the support that they need when they can't get in touch with a human. So AI, generative AI is, is sort of the bedrock of that, but obviously with um, uh, guardrails in place to make sure that the AI doesn't say anything that's not safe. So that's an interesting point, um, and I just want to mention it just before I go to Louise, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI taking jobs, uh, you know, doing things, you know, that's out of control or, or, or not for the benefit of humanity, um, but one thing that humans can't do is is operate twenty four hours a day. So, well, they they can asynchronous, asynchronously, but um, yeah, I mean, there's lots that AI can't do to replace a human. I mean, an AI is great at making judgments, but it does it outside of the context. Um, an AI is only as good as the information that's plugged into it. So. I don't think we'll ever do away with human um, psychologists or coaches or therapists, but an AI can really just augment those services and, you know, fill in some gaps. Very good points. Very good points. Louise, how about yourself? Yeah, I can, I can comment about um, where we're using AI and obviously in a lot of places. But just on... <coughs> oh, apologies. Uh, one thing that AI cannot, cannot do is to show care, right? So if you think about, like, if a customer comes to you with a, with a difficult story, yes, you can get ChatGPT to have a boilerplate answer, but if you know it's a machine responding to you, it doesn't, it's not showing care. It's not showing that you're actually listening and, and, and caring for the customer or for anyone interacting with that system. So I, I think we are very far from a situation that we can put a machine and people feel that they're being listened to. Um, there's obviously a lot of places that any other AI can be used, right? So in, in the bank, we, we've been using AI for, I don't know, more than 10 years or, or 
think about the modeling space where you build models to do predictions to understand the world. Um, not just the bank, but a lot of organizations do a lot of modeling. And obviously there's modeling with your learning with data, doing predictions, all AI. There's, there's a lot of spaces that, um, that we've been using AI, been talking about it. And if you are a combined customer, you, you, you probably see on your app uh, things like BillSense that is actually trying to help you forecast your bills and your financial commitments. That's all an AI system in, in the background, understanding what, I, what is a bill, what is not a bill, and what is coming, right? So the, that system helping you forecast. Um, we have systems as well to uh, flag potential abuse in, in transaction descriptions. Uh, this is a problem that we, we notice on um, that people are using transactions to send abusive messages. And how do you actually, this is a completely unacceptable use of the banking system. Uh, and in a lot of times it's not necessarily only using swear words, it's actually potentially threatening message to, to the ex-partners and so on. How do we actually do detect this kind of messages? How do we actually info, um, um, build a system around that we can actually control and, and, and prevent these things from happening? So it's, very, it's not just the AI system that do that, but also a whole process behind it. How do you have the people to support that process? How do you actually have someone to, to show that care and commitment to, to the customers? So I can, I can go on and give you so many examples of where, where we're building AI systems, and we have many that we, we talked about it. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll probably develop later some more. But th th there's literally no part of the bank that it's not being touched by some sort of AI. And it's an interesting uh, thing to see that you know such a, I mean, Commonwealth Bank is the largest company in the country, uh, and and that's it, it illustrates that there's a there's a place for AI in in many parts of the business. So very interesting. Um, yeah, in research. Um, obviously, you've described a little bit about your research, but uh, is, there, is there some particular area where you think you know, you'd like to highlight around the application of AI that you're doing in the Institute? Yeah, as I mentioned, we have been using AI, <coughs> including this comparison, machine learning, and all the different technologies into different industry sectors. I just gave a couple of examples I personally involved. One is uh, I have been working with the CNE trends, and we use uh, machine learning technologies to help CNE trends to have a real-time prediction about passengers in each carriage, so carriage load prediction, real-timely. So CNE trends stop in each station only seven, uh, 90 seconds maximum and only a few minutes between one station to another station. During COVID-19, they really wanted to know each carriage, how many passengers, real-timely, that means between two stations in a few minutes. So we use machine learning, particularly data stream learning, and consider data about our Apple card, and also <clears throat> timetabling. We know morning, afternoon, daytime, and weekday and weekend differences and generate prediction to support. So it has been used by signatures, really help, help them for this uh, carriage, for this, uh, you know, passages, prediction and uh, control management. So that's an interesting point which I'd like to just mention is that, um, you know, being in the area for 
So we've got you know a range of people, 20 years, 25 years, 35 years. Uh, being in the area for a long time, uh, um, it, it illustrates that um, what's emerged in the last couple of years is there's a lot of off-the-shelf stuff available. Where the university comes in uh, to really make a difference is in some cases we've got industry partners coming to us with specific requests, you know, very specific, not off-the-shelf. It's not. Some, some things have never been created before. So the, the bespoke nature of some applications of AI is, is where, you know, the gap between what's available on the, on the market and what's inside a university laboratory is, is an interesting area for us to, to work in. So we, we, we work to support that, um, that interaction between industry needs and, and what the university can provide. So, Xi, uh, you've already covered one, you know, sort of case study. Um, I wonder whether um, Libby or Louise, would you be able to, you know, drill down a little bit further around a particular area where an innovation of AI has really made a difference for your business or, you know, detail some outcomes around that in, in your experience in a particular space that you're working in? I, I think... Um the the rapid advent of chat gpt and and um you know the generative ai capabilities like chat gpt have made a huge difference to us i mean for the past few years we've been experimenting with that sort of capability you know could we get our chatbot to respond in real time using natural language understanding to a user's inputs um but then along came chat gpt and we're like this is great, we'll just use this instead. Um, and so now what we're doing is training it. Um, so it's completely turned around the way we've, um, you know, the way we think about how we're using these capabilities in our business um, and, you know, the outcomes that we can deliver for our clients. Have you seen, just before we go to Louise, have you seen um, real um, feedback and changes that your clients are experiencing on the basis of this most recent innovation, has it made a massive difference? We haven't rolled it out with with actual real people yet. It's still it's still um, it takes a lot of training because the clients that we're working with are psychologically fragile. Um, there's a massive downside to giving the wrong response, and so we're putting a lot of time and effort into training our um, our models. It's good to know, and we'll dig deeper into the ethics and the responsible AI elements a little bit later. But uh, Louise, do you have a case study that you want to highlight? Yeah. I was just going to comment as well on top of your, your comment. ChatGPT is obviously something that um, made my life a lot easier and harder at the same time. Um, so one is that I used to have to convince a lot of people about AI and bring like ideas and, 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 and now I don't have to. Like, people come to me all the time, and it's like, ah, this ChatGPT. At the same time, there's a lot of problems that are not ChatGPT problems that people try to use ChatGPT. And it's all, it's all good, right? At least people are talking about AI, and they, they, they're thinking new ideas. Uh, the, the space of actually making sure that you have the correct response, and not, we, we have the same, right? You imagine um, we, we are using ChatGPT now to help our staff to navigate documents. Uh, we have, for instance... Uh, said if you go to a bank and ask a hard question, the person don't necessarily know the answer. They have to look at a document to say, how do I answer this thing that's complex question? Like if you're a foreigner and don't have residency in Australia, you want to open a bank account, how do you do that? The 
person might not know that, right? So there's documentation that says this. It's about 4,000 documents. How do you know all those four times documents? And obviously we're doing models like RAG, retrieve augmented generation to do that. But if you provide a wrong response, you might go into a compliance issue, right? So how do we make sure that we never do a wrong, wrong response, right? There's a lot of issues on ChatGPT usage and, and so on. Um, I, I was gonna comment the, your question, my, my answer to your question is pretty much the, the same I, I talked before. The abusing transaction description was something that we really brought to the market in the sense that uh, it was a problem that CBA found out and we also developed this system literally first in the world. Uh, we actually open source in the model very, very soon, in, the, in less than a month away. Uh, so any institution in the world can actually use it uh, and literally take the CBA model and they start detecting abuse in their systems using our model and then they can retrain with their own particular abusive problem. Um, and there's so many, I can talk about fraud and all, all of that, but there's so, so many cases. That's a very interesting point you raised about the open source. Uh, that, there's a lot of conversations at the moment, particularly in industries such as uh, Meta, for example. Their director of their AI lab is going on about the open source piece. For those of you who, who you know, would, would want to know more about that, it's basically the, the conversation about making things open for use by others. Uh, you know, and, and making it accessible, and then hence making it sort of usable by everyone in the world. That's that's a really impressive uh, step. I didn't know that was happening at CBA. Yeah, just common. It's not common for the bank to open source things, right? It's like you, <clears throat> as you can imagine, anything to get out of the bank is hard, right? Um, in, in this case, it's it's absolutely clear that we have to do and uh, and and the reason is the we want to uh, read the word of financial abuse. Right? We want to make sure that this problem is not there for everybody else. And what a better way to actually share everything, our story, our techniques and everything, so anyone can pick it up and, re and replicate and better the world in a, in a way. So I think we've been talking a little bit about, we're skirting around the edges of responsible AI and ethical AI. I wanted to now go move to that. It's been a big area of discussion, I think, um, in recent times because with the advent of really great technology, has seen a bit of apprehension in some quarters and therefore the, the you know, attractiveness to regulate and have a little bit more um, constraints around what the negative elements could be around AI. So I want to focus on that a little bit. Uh, for example, in, in Europe, the European Union is really trying to constrain um, the uh, regulation around AI. So, you know, startups and I, I've heard anecdotally startups and, and people who are trying to start businesses are, are looking at Europe as not a place <laughs> to do AI. Uh, so there's this balance that needs to be, you know, struck by between, um, you know, innovation and regulation. But at the end of the day, sometimes this whole piece around ethics and responsible AI is important, particularly in specific contexts. So I might just start with you, Libby. Um, Given you know you you are supporting people, or the AI will be to support people, um, particularly around recovery from injury and other things. How does your business you know you know sort of take on the the ethical piece, and what do you do in in that space? Look, that's a great question, and it's a really big part of what we have to think about because we're collecting a lot of personal data. You know, we've got people's health data, we've got um, their, you know, psychological well-being data, 
we're collecting so many different data points and we do share that with the insurance companies who are our customers. Um, but I think we're lucky in that we've spent a lot of time working with universities and so we've come from a background of having to think through everything that we collect, everything that we um, use from an ethical point of view. All our research has gone through ethics committees and so as a company we have our own um, internal sort of ethics committee, if you like, so that every time we're thinking about, okay, we're going to collect this piece of data and we're going to use it for this purpose, making sure that, you know, it's secure for a start and if we're going to share it with a customer, that um, the way we share it is secure. There's, I mean, there's so many things that we have to think through in terms of ethical use of our data. Mm. Um, and then also the ethical use of our generative AI you know, is is there bias in the answers? Uh, you know, is the AI getting the context right? There, there are lots of things we have to think through in that sense. And that's a. I, I want to just pick up one of the points uh, you mentioned, um, particularly. I mean, I I think what people don't realise is that when you collaborate, in your case, you talked about collaborating with universities. There is an inherent ethics process in that collaboration which is a very substantial ethics process <laughs> and and that's an interesting point though because you know when you get into this area of ai there's scrutiny when you get into area of ai for psychology for medicine for you know that gets really you know you, you have to scrutinize even more so i think what people don't realize is that when you when you're an sme or a a smaller business not like you know um the biggest like in australia Bank. uh you know you you may not have you know, all the resources internally to do some of this stuff. But, you know, working with a university allows you to, to take that, you know, um, ethics piece, particularly around any technology development or trials or whatever it may be through that process. So that's that's a positive. Yeah, so our partnerships with universities have been around um, proving the validity of our chatbot and, you know, providing that... Um, efficacy back to our customers so that they know they're getting a return on investment um, and having a university as a partner with that is is really valuable but running a randomised control trial with human subjects is hard and getting those um, research studies through ethics takes a long time but it's it's been really good for us to have to think through all those issues and to really make sure that what we're doing with people um, is ethical. So I'm on the vein of the university piece. I was going to ask Gia if you could describe how how are you um, viewing the responsible AI slash ethics in AI piece in your in your work and in your institute. Yeah. So first of all, we think about AI. AI is has a big family. AI has uh, about eight main areas. Machine learning, computer vision, natural language processing, robot, intelligent robotics, brain computing interface, and uh, optimization as broad systems, and so on. So, responsible AI has been involved in all of those areas, including responsible machine learning, responsible this, uh, natural language processing, and so on. So, that is a big picture. Consider responsible AI, mainly we focus on those areas. One is transparency. 
explanation that is you, your your machine learning you need to have you need to explain what why that's the result what behind the reasoning also there's a privacy protection when we do transfer learning we have a domain a we don't have enough label data to train a model but we know we have a domain b which has enough label data we can train a model transfer knowledge from domain b to domain a traditionally they use data of domain b open to domain a but if you consider privacy protection, we only can transform models and we protect privacy of the main B. That's the example. Also, if you consider brand computing interface, you need to understand the conflict between AI machines and human cognition. So that's one part. Also, if you consider machine learning, you use data, how about it? Or Computer vision, you use data, you need to this, uh, fully consider the fairness. You need to consider safety. You need to have uh, you know, safety awareness when you do all the algorithms, develop different models and this, uh, in the AI field. So that's what we do. So our institute particularly established one research group across all labs. We have eight labs, across all labs and for Responsible AI Institute. We work this with other faculties as well, for example, Faculty of Law, and we this, uh, doing research. We think how to you know, this, um, uh, make sure our AI technology applications responsible. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Xi. And I might just turn to Louise um, as the last cab on the rack of this question. Um, you know, UTS, like CBA, is a large organisation. We've got AI policies, you know, for implementing our technologies in-house. Um, do you take a different approach when implementing technologies that are not AI versus implementing AI in your business? Yeah, good question. Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, if you think about technology or anything that you we do in the bank, it goes through obviously a very highly uh, regulated industry, right? There's a lot of things that we need to do before we do anything. Um, one of the things that that it's very embedded in CBA culture is the code of, code of conduct, right? And there's there's ways that we think about everything that we do at the bank. Uh, it's pretty much on a very simple question, right? Is a should we test? Not that we. Can we do it? Uh, is it legal to do it? But should we do it? Uh, and the question is it's very simple in the sense that if the thing that you're doing, can you talk to your parents about it? Can you talk to your, to your, your partner about it? Can you talk to your neighbor about it? And they will feel good about what you're doing. If they don't, that means it's, it's the, an indication that you should not do what you, what, you, what you think of doing. So, And that obviously applies to literally everything that we do in the bank. Um, but just going into the AI specific, um, AI is obviously something that we think very carefully on how to do safely and, and securely. Uh, we, we've been thinking for more than four years uh, about responsible AI, right? And of course, AI ethics and so, so on. We've been building tools to assist things like explanation when it's hard to get. And we were also one of the first, uh, I think one of six partners on testing the government AI principles. So we pretty much in the forefront of this, and this was probably three years ago. The now. federal principles, were they? Correct, yeah. 
we also have an AI policy in place, um, which dictate how we actually think about AI to do to like transparency, explainability, bias, and all these things. How we should adhere to that? How do we control for these things? And this is all on top of our existing governance frameworks from a privacy perspective, from modeling perspective, from monitoring, all, all of these things. Um, and just one, one thing, um, um, in, in addition, I'll just comment on one thing. Uh, we, every single project, for instance, that my team does, and that might be very simple kind of things on, on AI, if we do involve some data in particular, we, every single project, we have to have very long conversations with privacy. And all the people, they're independent to our team, to see whether with the thing that we're trying to do, with the data we're trying to do, meet not just privacy um, regulations, but actually meet cost, uh, community expectations, right? So if you're doing this thing and the person thinks that it does not meet community expectations, it's a test to say, look, we should not do that. That's a very good point. I've, I've attended uh, workshops where I've been a guest of various government and industry departments who actually are asking that very question, you know. It's sort of like the pub test in a sense, you know, do you feel comfortable if we were to push in this direction? And I think that's very important because you're not going to get people coming on board unless you do that. Um, you, you need to sort of have a focus group approach or, you know, a consultative approach around this because there is apprehension out there, you know. So, so I, since we're at a university and uh, since we're, we've got um, very distinguished industry people on our panel, I wanted to pose um, a question around working together. Uh, we've already heard a little bit about that from Libby around working with, you know, um, universities for, you know, doing trials and supporting the testing of models. Um, what, what other opportunities do our industry partners see around, um, you, know, you know, more collaboration in this area around AI? Do you see other opportunities that we could work together as universities and industry? I can comment quickly. I, I, I see a lot of opportunities, right? Uh, and, and we do seek them, them out. Obviously, we talk to the UTS in quite a few, few times. Um, one, one area that I'm, I'm very interested in is normally the... Because we have a large cohort of data scientists and capability in-house, right? So a majority of problems that we have, that we're facing now, we're going to have people to, to solve them. And very, very capable people. What is very hard for industry in particular is to look at the five, ten years time frame. Like, we don't necessarily need, need to think about ten years time or, or twenty years time in, in the AI space. And I, I really welcome if universities come to us and say, look, we think about this problem not even in your radar. Should we do a collaboration? And, and absolutely, it's a yes, right? Because in five years, ten, ten years time, we're going to bear the fruits for that. That's an interesting point because the future is something I'd want to talk about right at the end of our, our talk, but what you're suggesting is that the university piece actually can contribute to that future. You know, so that's, that's an interesting perspective. Thank you for that. And uh, Libby, aside from the sort of work you've already done, um, how do you see from your business's perspective the future of that collaborative piece? Well, universities are such hubs of innovation and, I mean, the very nature of a business is that we're busy running the business um, you know, day to day. And so we don't have a lot of um, opportunity to sit around and think, oh, what if we did this? Or why don't we try this? So often partnering with universities, um, particularly PhD students, is a great way for us to 
you know, test out our theories and our, our wish lists and, and see can it be done. Um, and, you know, we've certainly found some very willing collaborators in universities. Well, uh, you mentioned PhDs and I think that's, that, that is a rich um, vein of, in, you know, innovative people. They're, they're usually, you know, I'm not saying they're always early career, but they, they're sometimes new to, to, to things and they bring different approaches and particularly the research type of approach uh, to a problem could be of value, particularly if they're working on something cutting edge that might help. So, so absolutely, I'm glad you raised that PhD question. And I might ask Gia just on, in a different way, um, same question, but from a research academic perspective, what are you seeing in recent times are the type of industry problems that are coming to you that, that need solving? Yeah, actually, you're right. We may consider university academics and the industry how to collaborate together. Basically, two ways. One, we would like to translate our advanced new technology into industry in applications as soon as possible. And uh, this normally we develop some general technologies and we customize for particular industry use. And another way, our new ideas sometimes come from literature review, but in many situations come from industry issues. So we want the industry to bring your issue to us and then we can think, oh, that's the issue. We should develop a new technology to deal with. That's two ways to encourage collaboration. And by my experience, we are PhD graduates. Roughly 50% to be academics and another 50% will be working in industry as data scientists, machine learning engineers, and so on. Just my experience, I have supervised the 50 PhD students to graduation, really half-half. And so to help them to quickly, this, uh, you know, within the industry life, the good way is if we can have some programs to as industry, part, industry partner or industry expert to be co-supervisor during the three, four years of PhD life. Then can be some co-allocation PhD students to take three, six months to work in industry, to support them to use industry data, case studies, test their research, also build their industry experience. So after graduation, immediately can work in industry. Another way, as a university, we would like to offer short courses and to talk our advanced AI technologies to industry you can directly use and build, build some, you know, these uh, collaborations. So that's another way I'm thinking. Can I just say... Please. It, it's not all one way. I think, um, I think that industry has a lot to offer universities as well. I mean, the, um, the sort of projects that I've seen come out of universities work very well from a technological point of view but they're not pretty they're not they don't have great ux and that's where the budgets of industry can really bring a university project to life and commercialize it and and put it out into the real world like apple fire 
excellent. Yeah. That's excellent. I, I think that's a really good point. And so one of the things we've started doing um, a lot of now, I mean, we talk about at UTS, we're doing a lot of research industry collaboration and great, there are projects, there are translation. But what's happening in, in recent times, we're actually taking um, industry coming into us and saying we want to actually live inside the campus and actually work really much more close with you. So we've got companies co-locating here on the UTS main campus. We have UTS Tech Lab near Botany, which is a purpose-built research facility. We've got partners coming in there, massive partners sometimes, uh, in global companies like Nokia. We've got Space Machines, which is a space company of all things. Advanced Navigation just launched recently. And they want to come to us because they, for that very reason, right, that we, we're trying to have a constant conversation about, you know, how do we solve things? Not just, here's a solution, off you go. The, the co-creation of things in a co-located environment has actually worked really well. So that's another approach that we're started to, to really move towards. And, and I think that proximity really makes a difference. And we're in this precinct here at Tech Central, which is another great opportunity for proximity to industry. And hopefully that porosity between industry and, and academia will, be, will grow uh, in, in this country because... I think we've sort of say university and industry, there should actually be a blurring between the two. There shouldn't actually yeah, be I one or the other. I think it's really important and um, we are seeing it more and more. I mean, um, I was at MIT a few months ago and it's, I mean, Google's right there in, their, in the middle of their campus. The MIT Media Lab has companies co-located within their facility there. It works really well. And that, that model is um, also replicated in places like the UK, Europe, but we need to do more of that uh, in Australia because I think in some ways we, if we're not catching up with some of our uh, you know, sisters and brothers across overseas, we'll actually fall behind. You know, the industry um, academia interface is a lot to deliver for, for the country. So, um, so I think we're going to... Start wrapping up in a second because I'd be keen to take some questions from the audience. But one last final question I'd like to ask each of the panellists. Uh, and Louise, you touched upon the future a little bit in the industry-university context. But um, as, you know, people working in industry and, and, and academia, um, a, what, what do you think um, AI will, be, will do? Just from your knowledge of what's happening now in your businesses in your labs, uh, what do you think, how will AI shape, you know, not only your business but the future um, for, you know, what, what we're going to face? I'm, I'm laughing because it's such a hard question now, right? Like, um, I think it's going to touch every single part of every single business, right? Like, uh, just the, the availability of tools like ChatGPT opened the minds of everyone. So, hence... Um, Technologies like ChatGPT, it's you're going to see in the, this year and the next year being rolled out pretty much everywhere. Um, there, there are other technologies out there. They are also transformative. They're, they're coming up. Um, like things that are like privacy-preserving technologies and, and all that in addition to, 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 to AI and so many other areas. But, but I'm, I'm sure ChatGPT and the LLMs are going to be taking over the world for the next couple of years. Libby? <laughs> yeah, I mean, AI is ubiquitous. It's like the internet was 20 years ago. Um, and, it, I mean, it is still a bit of Wild West out there. Um, I personally, because I work in health tech, I would like to see 
something like the Hippocratic Oath for health chatbots so that they do no harm. I'm not sure how that will happen, but um, that's definitely on my to-do list. Yeah. Any reflections of the future? <laughs> AI has been developed very fast in the last few years. And they will keep going because uh, we have uh, almost new algorithms every day, new application reported every day if you read the papers. And the future, I think, we currently we are in industry 4.0. In next 10 years, we will be industry 5.0. And fully AI-driven, consider human-machine collaboration. So that's one of the future, I believe, will happen within five to 10 years. And we can think in that way, uh, when we talk about responsible AI, say we are driving a car in highway very fast. Not in Australia, better in Germany, right? <laughs> 200, 300 per hour. But at the same time, we need to build fence, high, highway fence. We need to build highway traffic rules. So that means we need to have responsible AI to make sure our AI responsible and the safety positively impact to the society. I think that's a great um, way to finish um, because I think one thing we, we have all heard from the panelists today is that there are positive impacts that AI can bring. And the main thing is, okay, we talk about positive impacts for the business, but at the end of the day, AI should have positive impacts to society and humanity. So that's a, that's a great point. I just want to leave you with one last thing. Um, if you look at the... You mentioned that, Jia, that uh, AI has particularly taken off in the last couple of years. Uh, at least some people perceive that it just came out of nowhere. But it actually has been around for a really long time. And I'll leave you with this thought. That uh, the artificial neuron was discovered in 1943. One of the most important algorithms that underpins what we have as AI today was backpropagation in 86. Deep learning was discovered in 2015. And ChatGPT came alive in 2022. What do you notice about that? The trend of significant innovations is getting shorter and shorter. So it'll be very interesting to see where the next innovation comes, but it might not be that far away. So, but I will just say, Future's looking bright for AI. So I'd like to um, ask everyone to thank the panellists today and we're going to take some questions after that. Yes, question. I just want to give a quick uh, top of information of uh, part-time staffer here. <laughs> On um, UTS we have also 700 startups, which is probably more than any other university in Australia. Um, it's been inherited from uh, fish burners and the guys who run it just here across the road. A question for you for, for future is uh, like, uh, there's a quantum computing, I don't know, I'm sure you follow in some way, <laughs> was also in UNSW team who actually had a user case. And that's, I would like to know, take a follow of you on a panel, what's uh, 
they say when that two join AI and quantum computing, that then might be a conscious <laughs> operation. So just throw it out there. <laughs> Thank you. I've got a particular view on this question, but I'm going to throw to the panel, and, uh, and then I'll just uh, wrap that question up. But it's a very good question, quantum AI. Any, anyone on the panel care to answer that one? Not my area of expertise, so... Libby? not mine. Gia? I'm not the expert in this area, but um, by my understanding, quantum computing, we have... Uh, UTS, our faculty, we have one research center based on quantum software. And like University of New South Wales, they mainly focus on quantum hardware system. So in quantum software, and some of these software models developed, they indeed they use some AI concepts, but detailed algorithms we are now involved in the development. I'll just also finish up quickly to end. Hopefully, I'll answer your question. Um, Gia made a very important distinction there that UNSW deals with hardware. We deal with software here at UTS. Um, the primary strength of quantum is that you can do computations faster than any other computer. That's the, that's the hypothesis, right? Um, the reality is we don't have a quantum computer yet that can do that. So that's number one. It's probably going to be about five years away minimum. That's number two. I would argue that it's not going to... Quantum and AI is not going to bring about consciousness, even though the speed will be huge. That's, that's probably not where it's going to go. My, this is just my personal thought, that until we can actually emulate the biological brain properly, we will not achieve consciousness and we currently understand the biological brain to the extent of about 10 to 15 percent and being it's the most complex thing in the universe um, it's likely until we crack that problem no no speed of computing will actually bring us closer to that consciousness piece that's my personal view so uh, there's a question over there hi thank you thank you for the talk today um, I really appreciate the emphasis you've put on ethical. Personally, I'm overrun with scams. Um, how can we stop nefarious activity through AI? I can, I can definitely jump in there. <laughs> I, I didn't mention that before. But yeah, we're doing a lot in that space, obviously, and, and CBA is very conscious about the increase in, in scams and, and, and in to everyday life, right? So we have quite a few things that we've done in that space, and it's just I know it sounds like a marketing pitch here, but we have a few systems uh, in place. So we have one that's um, a caller check. For instance, if CBA calls someone, like you can actually ask someone to go to the phone and verify there's a CBA caller. So if you ever receive a call from someone pretending to be CBA, the, the first question is that you go to CBA app and it's going to verify that you're actually being receiving a call from CBA. That's super important, right? Because you don't know who's calling you. If, say, it's the bank, you need to wait to prove that you are the bank, and that's the way we're doing it. The other thing is that people, scammers, are going to the branches and pretending to be you, right? They get somehow an ID and then pretend to be you and try to withdraw money. And the other side of this is that we can actually ping the person and say, are you at the branch right now? And there's so many cases that people say, no, I'm not in the branch. I'm 500 meters away or I'm a kilometer away or something. 
and and then the person just ran out of the branch, right? Because it got identified was a was a scammer. Um, we also have AI systems in the back end uh, trying to detect uh, problems with scam. We have a system detecting investment scams, which are normally very um, large amount of money. Someone transferred to a crypto exchange. We also done something uh, to prevent large money going to crypto exchanges, which is like 90% of the, the, the investment scams. And we're also developing other models to try to identify um, other types of scams, but these are, are something they are under development currently. But we, we're doing a lot trying to prevent people from losing their money. Beyond banking, sorry, beyond banking, is there anybody in the world working on regulating AI to prevent nefarious activity? Anyone care to comment? Um, look, I think just in my own understanding, um, you know, the type of regulation that's, that's coming about certainly will address those things. I know for a fact that there are government agencies that are looking at ways to address uh, scams because it's not just banking, as you say. There's uh, tax, there's, um, you know, law enforcement, there's insurance companies, there's everything. There's a scam for everything. Um, so there is a lot of work. Sorry? Yes, that's right. So there, there, is a, there is a lot going on, I think, at the governmental level. But at the end of the day, in some cases, there are also individual industries that are looking at this more closely, particularly ones that are susceptible to these things and have particularly devastating consequences if you, you know. But the problem is technology is evolving quicker than sometimes the bad actors. Yeah, and I was just going to say, it's a cat and mouse game, right? Like you you prevent some fraud and some scam here and they learn that you prevented that and they, they create other ways. So it's our, our constant evolving space. Okay. Well, I think we're nearly perfectly on time. Um, I'd like to just uh, say that it's been a robust discussion today. I'm really um, happy we got a chance to cover a range of topics and uh, could you please all give a big round of applause to our panel. So thank you, Louise, Libby, and Gia. And, um, and anyway, we, as you may know, there's a huge program of activity at South by Southwest. So I hope uh, you enjoy the rest of the day. And uh, thanks for coming to the panel session today. See you later, everyone. You've been listening to an edited version of a recent panel discussion called Embracing the Power of AI in Enterprise, Bridging Academia and Industry for a Transformative Future. It was held recently at UTS. The full talk is available now as a Think Business Futures podcast. And thanks for listening to the program. If you want to listen to this program again or share it with your friends, just go to touracr.com or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Think Business Futures will be back next week. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening.